Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Intercom's The Oil and Gas Podcast. Uh, today is Tuesday, April 16, so the day after tax day. Did you get your uh, your taxes filed there, Aaron? I got them in. <laughs> I got them in. <laughs> Excellent. So I'm Glenn Parrott, and with me today, my co-host, Aaron Vandeford, who has indeed paid his taxes. Uh, so it's been a couple of weeks since we last did this. Um, at the time, uh, the final four uh, was, <laughs> or not the final four, but uh, March Madness was just underway and we'd made our picks. And now that the final four is over with, Rick didn't do that great. <laughs> you know, it, so I was reading something that it, it's actually harder to get a perfect bracket than it is to win the lottery in some cases. Seriously? Yeah. And yet somebody always wins. And yet someone does it. So... Well. I, uh, I told Rick he needed to change his model. His analytics got him only so far. He did get Michigan State, though, but ultimately it didn't end up that way. But that's not what everyone's here for. So uh, let's get rolling along as we kind of go through this uh, podcast. You know, we try and take a look at some of the items that are timely and topical. Um, and given the, the date and everything, I guess top of that list would be most recent news being Chevron's acquisition of... Uh, Anadarko, which uh, um, for those are uh, presumably everyone knows about this, but if you don't know, Chevron's set to acquire Anadarko Petroleum. Uh, it's a cash and stock deal uh, valued at an astounding $33 billion. <laughs> Do you have an extra billion laying around? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. But that's, is, a, that's a big deal. It, yeah. It, it, it's it's and pretty I, interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, so again, you know, the you know the nuts and bolts transaction was valued at sixty five bucks a share. Uh, I gather, a, what are they saying? Like a thirty seven percent premium yep. um, to Thursday's closing price, uh, Thursday, April eleven, I believe. And uh, and really, it takes Chevron uh, from the fourth biggest international oil major by production. Uh, to the second largest, so that's that's quite a, a leap there for a big company. I mean, good grief! Right, and you know, Anadarko's no obviously no small small company. It was a needle mover, uh, but it was a needle mover to allow them to get into uh, the U.S. shale market a little bit in a major way, I'll say. And so, when you start to think about you know these large internationals and 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 Exxon with their XTO purchase. This is kind of Chevron's version of that uh, many years later. A decade later yeah. or something. <laughs> when did that take place? Do you know it was like 2000? Uh, 2000, oh. I mean, I'm going to get it wrong now, right. but I think it was 2010 because it was the very first article we wrote on oil and gas 360. Is that right? Yeah. Oh. And that was the transaction. So I wrote that, but I, I think it was 2010. Huh. But it was the launch of oil and gas 360. I... Little fun, fun intercom fact for you. Well, uh, it's actually pretty cool, actually. So I, huh, don't know what to do with that quite yet. But <laughs> <laughs> well, needless to say, we did write about this one uh, uh, on three sixty. <clears throat> uh, part of this deal, what I found interesting was that this notion that I guess Occidental was involved in this, and to the extent that they were also targeting Anadarko. And looks like they were prepared to pay seventy bucks a share, um, and 
you know, obviously Chevron's made some a strategic decision, or Anadarko made the strategic decision to the feeling that that Chevron was the the better fit uh, as opposed to the uh, Occidental mm-hmm. bid. So I've got no color or context around that, other than you know I think it's interesting that uh, that it was put out there that Occidental's in the mix. Yeah, and I think that that's a real positive to to see another player come in, uh, kind of a competitive bid. Uh, we're thinking about what's going on in the boardrooms and these decisions, and you know, Anadarko is going to be a, a shareholder of Chevron, a very large shareholder. Yeah. And so, as you start to think about who you want to align yourself with and and who may be a, a better fit, it's not all about the the end price. I mean, they still got a close to forty percent premium. That that seems to fit, but you know, it's not all about the the immediate close, and so. I think that's an interesting thing to watch. Yeah. The only thing that I heard was, I guess, on CNBC where they were saying there were, quote unquote, structural issues with the Occidental bid. And, and that's just, in my mind, speculative. We don't we don't know at this point. But regardless, it, you know, irrelevant. You know, I think that it really, at the end of the day, um, it's really speaking more towards Chevron's goals. Uh, as, you know, as you mentioned, really their overall Permian strategy. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, get sort of that industrial scale to shale drilling, um, bringing that to bear. So, uh, you know, other things around that, you know, it um, certainly going to increase the number of rigs, um, you know, introduce sort of their really efficient, their efficiencies in their pad drilling and, you know, digital analytics, et cetera. Um, but it also, for Colorado, <laughs> you know, there's this element, this component about bringing potentially, I don't know if it's really bringing that model for you know Chevron's model to Anadarko's DJ Basin assets here. So the question in my mind is, what you know, what do you think? Where do you think Colorado plays into this? From if you're Chevron, it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it, it's the Permian side of it was certainly the driver, right? Anadarko had a huge, has a huge position here in the DJ Basin. Uh, one of the legacy large positions, and yet it may be kind of one of those non-core assets for a Chevron. And so there may be an opportunity for for another player to come in and pick that type of asset up. I'm not sure who that may be. <laughs> I, I've kind of racked my brain and said, who who's kind of the size and scale that would want and need that? Right. Um, but Chevron might turn around and say, no, actually, this is kind of why we did this. And so uh, without, you know, more more information in, in Chevron's thinking, Permian's certainly going to get the capital and the lion's share of capital. When you're starting to think about competing for capital, I think that's where it's going to go. And ultimately, I think in their, in their call for this, they laid out a, a 2019 plan and capital budget that was ultimately less than the two companies combined. And so that's efficiencies. We're reducing capital spend. But a lot of that reduction in capital spend came from the Chevron assets, not the Anadarko assets. Gotcha. Yeah, the uh, and that's, during the announcement, you know, what you heard of certainly was focus on Permian and, you know, I don't want to say to a lesser extent, but also um, LNG. And then it seems off to the side, there's, oh, yeah, we've also got these DJ assets, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm really curious as to how that's going to play out. Yeah. You know, do you just take that and 
hey, yeah, we're, we're going to potentially sell it off in bits and pieces or one fell swoop or, or as you mentioned, do you take it and run with it? I don't know. Um, more to come. More to come for sure. But, you know, we certainly saw Anadarko and, and the way that they dealt with that asset. I mean, they, they certainly inside their portfolio were, were allocating capital towards the Permian. And so I've got to imagine that that Chevron will continue to go down that path. But I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on 181 here coming up, uh, the Colorado Senate bill and how that's progressed. But that may give a little bit more clarity, a little bit more um, runway for someone to put some capital to work um, in and around the Colorado assets. So you also brought up something the other day. You made a comment uh, on the heels of this announcement where you were like, you know what, this is, you would you classify this as a quote unquote uh, a healthy acquisition, a healthy M and A deal. Yeah. So, explain that. No. So I we as we exited twenty eighteen, we kind of saw or kind of the middle of eighteen, we saw these stock for stock deals. The M and A market was starting to to heat up, but most of it was to fix structural issues. And so if we think about you know Chesapeake. And, and even the Denbury announcement, it was really to fix a debt problem right. in a public setting and or fix a growth issue. And, and M&A generally should work together, but it was not a, 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 a premium valuation company going after something they, where they see tremendous value. It was really some other catalysts in there. And this is the first and obviously a very large deal with a competitive bid space, that we have a healthy company in right. Chevron yeah. who's trading at a, a premium to a lot of its peers, and Anadarko is a healthy company trading at a discount, but really good assets. Right. And now we're going to put this thing together, and I I think that that is fundamentally different, and a real positive for this industry uh, and the M and A space moving forward, compared to what we were seeing in in kind of the mid two thousand eighteen. Uh, time frame with those deals. Would you still have classified this a healthy deal had it been Occidental? Yeah, I think so, actually. Yeah. Uh, you know, Occidental is another healthy player yeah. who's certainly, you know, large and in charge in the Permian also. Yeah. No, uh, I agree with you. I just, I was, you know, it's like, um, but but does does it being Chevron, does that make it a bigger message? And I, I think so. I think so. So. And I think it, it also, you know, and we, we've been traveling some, we've, we've been out in New York, we've, you get, you've been down in, in New Orleans and we've been listening to some of the, the shareholder response. This kind of woke people up, uh, in a little bit to say, Hey, I, maybe as an investor, I need to look at the space a little bit more because something's happening. Yeah. And so I think, you know, it's an internal vote of confidence internal being the internal industry saying, hey, there's there's a lot of value here. And right. We're going to figure out how to make this work. And so I think investors have to take note as well, and they have. Right. Yeah, it's uh, certainly a different message than the sort of Cimarx Resolute type of deal mm-hmm. where there was one buyer, it was <laughs> kind of a seller going to a buyer and saying, hey, well, you, you want this? Yeah. And they said, sure, if you're willing to sell for this. And they said, you bet. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, that, I think fundamentally that's different than than what you see here. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, a 40% premium with some cash, this is a healthy deal. Nice. So there you go, everyone. 
Who knows? Maybe this uh, portends better for 2019. I'm not sure. I think so. Well, it's certainly... Because if you're Occidental, I mean, seriously, you're still potentially shopping around. You're like, okay, this deal didn't work on out. Are you going to... Are you going to fight that? Or are you going to, you know, argue for it? Or are you going to go, you know what? There's other opportunities There's out other. there that, that are, for us, equally healthy and additive. Yeah. I, I, I believe that they're still in the market. Yeah. And they'll, they'll find something that, that is a good fit for them. Um, and so, you know, are companies ready to go shopping? I hope so. I, I think there needs to be some consolidation. And, and certainly the messages that we're seeing... Um, in the market and from investors of this free cash flow mantra that we've talked about in, in our previous uh, shows is requiring a larger company, uh, more production, more of a production base. And so if that's where we're going, M&A needs to, needs to kind of lead some of that charge. So I'm positive. There you go. You know, a, uh, and, and, the, you know, we, the way we kind of structure this is kind of go through timely and topical. We spent a lot of time on that one item. Um, I just want to make mention uh, around just real quickly. Let's touch base on on Colorado um, uh, Senate Bill One Eighty One. You know, we when we started doing the podcast, it had just been sort of introduced, and in this brief amount of time, it's really been rushed through. Um, and uh, in, in essence. Uh, 181 is passed by the Colorado General Assembly. Um, I think it was it had to be almost two weeks ago. Yeah, week and a half or so. I think. Um, I'd say you know the you know the governor governor is expected to sign this into law any day. Um, right now, they you know they're going through the the rulemaking revamp process. Um, you know, uh, there, there's not much more really to comment on. There's a lot of wait and see. Um, there's uh, most companies seem to be having this feeling that they can work with what's been put forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there was this, this leading up to the General Assembly, you know, this feeling that this was going to be a moratorium. It was going to shut down for a little while. That, that's been alleviated. Uh, you know, we're going to continue to be able to go to work. Most of the, the overall, you know, perspe- perspective of, of a lot of the clients we're working with and, and having conversations with is, look, we can work with this. Um, we're, we have to work with it, so we are. And ultimately, we want to be good stewards of, of the communities we work in. We want to be good stewards of the environment. We're continu- we, we do that, and we will continue to do that and, and show it. And so, you know, I think one of the things you will see in investor presentations that are going to come up is everyone's going to be a rural operator, even though they may not be. <laughs> But you're certainly going to start to see uh, everyone speak to themselves as a rural Colorado operator, and and uh, you'll have to decide for yourselves who's who's. Uh, we're nowhere really near rural. local communities. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not drilling in Denver. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's not like it's going down Main Street. But uh, you know, those a lot of these assets that are that are outside of of communities are certainly going to be uh, drilled. Um, probably not affected in, in any material manner at this point. And there will be litigation that, that will kind of clean this up as there is with any bill that comes forward. Yeah, I think the, the greatest distress, that, at least within the industry in Colorado in particular, was that it was on the heels of, you know, a November ballot initiative that was an assault on oil and gas in Colorado. And suddenly this one comes along and it's 
Um, I don't want to say it was an overreaction because that's not the case. Um, but there was certainly the speed at which was was coming. There, people needed time to digest and understand and have dialogue. And I think they felt that they weren't getting that opportunity. So um, at least in a, in a reasonable way. But anyway, that's the, the latest and greatest on at least, you know, the status of 181, unless there's any other color that you've got around it. No, I think that that's, that, that really kind of summarizes it. It was very fast. Um, I think that, that, as you mentioned, the industry would have liked a larger voice in it. Yeah. But I think we're, we're at a point where, look, let's go to work. And I think we're feeling that across even the other conversations that we're having with investors. People are ready to go back to work and they have been for a long time. And, and so, you know, as we, as we went through 112, 181, we've, we've got something where we can go to work. Yeah. Let's go to work. Okay. So moving along, um, you know, you mentioned uh, that we've kind of been doing a lot of traveling recently, uh, kind of hitting up the other industry conferences that Intercom is fortunate enough to, uh, to attend. Um, I guess most recently, of course, um, IPAA's Oil and Gas uh, Industry Symposium. I was in New York. Um, it was going on this time last week. And you got stuck there in, in the uh, snowstorm that well, we had here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so you got to enjoy New York for a few extra days. Yeah, Colorado decided to spool up a quick little blizzard, and uh, I think 600 flights were canceled, mine <laughs> included. So uh, it was very pleasant in New York, though. Yeah. It was actually, yeah, it was really nice. Um, you know, the weather held out for everybody. So... In any event, got to go to the conference and, you know, see, uh, you know, some, some good presentations, have good dialogue, uh, I guess. Um, and you were there as well, naturally, mm-hmm. um, representing one of our clients. Um, overall, thoughts? Overall, I thought, I think a lot of the same themes that we've kind of heard have progressed a little bit. Um Certainly, you know, generation of free cash flow. If you can do it, mm-hmm. we want you to do it. And the investors are, are preaching that and, and companies can do it. Uh, we're moderating growth, uh, paying down debt or, or right-sizing balance sheets in any way possible. So, you know, we'll still probably see some of that type of M&A activity or uh, debt exchanges, those types of things. Uh, and then share buybacks are something that, that have, you know, continued to be preached forward. <laughs> Uh, and then, then something that, that kind of an evolution of this free cash flow idea was, and we, I heard it more than once was this, we're going to be EBITDA neutral in 2019, which yeah. is kind of a step back of, well, if you take out kind of the other things that we have, the interest and we're, we're going to yeah, kind of spend that cash flow. Um, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to be the one guy in the room raising his hand saying, what's EBITDA neutral mean? <laughs> really? <laughs> I don't know. So but look. I, I, I appreciate the term, and I, I think companies are doing what they can do, and, and they're moving on the right path from that to say, hey, we're moderating growth, we're spending within our means. Um, but I don't think they fooled anyone with this free cash flow to EBITDA neutral type of, of little bit of a shift. And I think a lot of that came from, hey, well, prices haven't been, as we came in in 2018, prices were low which means that our cash flows are going to be a little bit low on the production. So this free cash flow got pushed out a little bit further. And even for the companies that, that weren't going to be able to get there now have this 
EBITDA neutral thing to be talking about. And so we'll, we'll, we'll hear more of that. You know, I was uh, and sitting in one of the breakout sessions uh, with a specific firm. It was a small cap firm. I, and, um, you know, these guys are, it was interesting. They were really impressed by generalist investors, to be honest with you. The guy was, you know, admittedly a, a generalist. And he was uh, really asking, you know, very pointed questions and, and really driving uh, management towards this answer the question around, hey, you know what, you know, we'd like to see you guys, you know, drive towards uh, more free cash. And, you, you know, you, you see the management teams are, you know, they feel the pinch, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, ah, if I can, you know, and and they were like, okay, well, if you're able to do that, what are you going to do with the extra cash? And they're like, uh, pay down debt? Uh, or you can do share buybacks. And sure, if we can. <laughs> I mean, you know, these guys are in this position where they're they're being pressed on it and they're right. they're trying to answer the question, but they're like, Oh yeah, we'll try and get there if we can. Yeah. So. And it it it's uh the capital allocation decisions that these companies are having to go through, even to get to that free cash flow number, has a lot to do with what leases have I purchased to re- you know, what what's expiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, am I really okay on my my midstream contracts of production declines because that's real money out the door. Uh, my hedging profile that I've got and that I've set up for the next 12 to 36 months uh, or really 24, you know, I, I hate to say we'll, we'll drill for a hedge book, but certainly weighing for not having to pay um, for unused production. Right. And so as we, we ask companies to be long-term thinkers and very reactionary in the in the near term. These things are at odds, and and so those are all things that that companies are thinking about as we are going into the capital budgeting. We've we've set a capital budget, but as we get into this Q1 time period and we get our first check-in of that, you know, how are we going to adjust? And and you know, companies say they can move move it up very quickly. But do they kind of back it down a little bit in some ways too? Uh, so um, that was certainly there. Um, companies themselves, some of the the presentations, I, I don't want to say highlight because that's not necessarily the case. But one I at least I wanted to talk about was, you know, there were some some good presentations, no doubt. Um, uh, and uh, so, you know, I guess. Uh, you know, like a great presentation, but this was at Howard Wheel, uh, Simorex, I thought gave a great presentation. Um, IPAA, they weren't there, but uh, you had companies like uh, PDC. Um, Who actually had, had a, an activist, not, you know, a little bit earlier, a couple of weeks before, and and continues to make noise. And so this this age of the activist is here. Right. But, you know, I really good for PDC to, to be there, control their message, Get out there and, and really make sure you're having a dialogue and not crawl into a hole, which we see a lot with, with companies. It, it, that's exactly right. And that's, I guess, why I wanted to highlight a couple of these companies. I'm like, you know, PDC, activist investor, you're out there, you're messaging. Um, you know, uh, another company that, that, that showed up and, and frankly could have stuck its head in the sand, uh, but didn't. And that was Ultra mm-hmm. Petroleum. So UPL, you know, management showed up. They, you know, they took the heat, but they showed up that they're in, in it and, you know, they're messaging on out as, you know, best as they can. No, it was, it was, it was great to see. It's uh, a new team there at Ultra. This was their first time as a, 
as a unit going out and speaking with investors. And mm-hmm. so it, they got to get out there and reintroduce themselves, reintroduce the story, reintroduce the Pinedale to folks. And, and it's a huge asset. I mean, $500 million EBITDA asset. And a lot of these companies would kill for that type of <laughs> asset. And it's a gas asset uh, that, that can do that. Uh, but certainly, you know, the balance sheet strains what they're doing and, and they're going to be proactive and, and they're working with it. But another example of, of getting out in front of something when they need to. Yeah. And and uh, I also um, I sat in on uh, SRC's uh, presentation as well as the breakout. And um, and I got to tell you, I, I thought that Lynn Peterson did a great job, uh, meaning from a just a pure leadership perspective. You know, he showed up, he, um, he addressed the investors' concerns specifically around sort of, you know, the issues around Colorado and Senate Bill 181, going back to that topic. But, um, you know, he didn't shy away from it. He was, uh, you know, upfront, talking to everybody, saying, hey, we've addressed this. And, you know, you know, look, we we want to be in these communities. We work with these people. You know, you know, we're, we're hand in glove, uh, you know, making this work with within our neighborhood and where we're at. And, and uh, you know, he didn't shirk from it. So I thought that it was actually, a, um, I thought it was a great uh, way to come on out to everybody and really show confidence, show that they've got a plan and show that they are working within quite arguably one of the harshest regulatory environments in the U.S. for oil and gas. Well, I, I think it's a good leadership position uh, that he kind of came out and said, hey, you know, not only SRC, but we're going to be able to to move this forward. And and the DJ players have been put in the penalty box ever since kind of the whispers of 112. Right. And I think there's a real opportunity for companies to message clarity and a path forward uh, with where we are with 181 to alleviate some of those those discounts. And so, you know, if I was a buyer, I'd be a buyer of the DJ uh, at this point. The, uh, well, <laughs> so as an investor, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I guess, uh, the reason I was bringing that up with regards to it, you know, the investors, you know, multiple conversations around that and, and they really, they did express real frustration around companies that don't show up and present because, and I, and I asked, you know, we'd be at lunch and I'd, you know, it's like, Hey, look, you know, shoot straight with me. I mean, how important is it really for you individually um, to meet with company management face to face in your investment decisions? And I've asked this question multiple times, you know, over the years. Um, you know, you ask them, what happens if you can't do that? And you know, they all look at you like, well, yeah, <laughs> it is extremely important. Um, management interaction, you know, it's it's. You know, certainly much more fulsome, if you will, um, than just going through research reports and numbers alone. Uh, you can read body language, et cetera. And, and uh, you know, their, their biggest frustration is that, you know, you can, as an industry, if oil and gas is going to sit there and complain that investors aren't buying, well, it's because you're not showing up and talking to us. You know, head in the sand strategy is not a solid strategy. No, it's not. And it, it really is a two-way street on that. You know, industry has to show up and and I'll uh, I'll challenge the investors to put their money where their mouth is. Fair. So, you know, we need some of that investor investment. But what's really interesting on, you know, we've talked about some of this travel and some of the things that we've 
we've been around. That was before this uh, Chevron deal. And right. So there was a, I won't say record low, but a, kind of a depressed M&A market throughout Q1. We had you know, low prices in December leading into the first part of, of Q1. Everyone was kind of down. And, and that was from you know, companies down through investors. And when we felt some of that sentiment at some of the conferences that we've been at, that said, I think, as we, as we talked about earlier, that healthy M&A gives a little injection into um, the investor's eyes to say, all right, let's keep working here. Yeah, more to come on that, right? Yeah. The, the, it's going to take more than one deal to, I think, because and the reason I was I was just reading uh, Eric Natal um, his uh, March commentary. So Eric is a uh, a partner at Nine Point Energy, and you know he's got these monthly uh, commentaries that they put out. And you know the thesis of his commentary was uh, asking the question around: Is the energy sector broken? And uh, within that, he talks about everything that we've mentioned here um, and have talked about for you know a while. And he talks about where he's drafted an, an open letter to uh, the boards of, I, I want to say like 13 or so companies um, that he's involved with. And he's recommending the strategy of using free cash flow for share repurchases. Um, you know, his argument being like, hey, look, if you're trading at a discount to like your liquidation value, you got a good solid balance sheet and, and you've got the free cash to buy back a certain percentage of your shares outstanding, whether, you know, 10 to 30%. And yet you are unwilling to do so. Why the hell should I? Except he doesn't say hell. That, that was my <laughs> added. Why the heck should I? And, and, and his is, you know, he's like, Hey, look, there's really no legitimate answer to that question. And, I, and, and so that's, I guess, um, con on the, uh, from the investor perspective, I guess I'm taking that side where I'm like, okay, well, I understand that perspective, but yeah, no, I look, it makes sense. You kind of walk through this path and you say, look, return capital to shareholders. There's methods of doing that. It's, there's a dividend share buyback. You know, there's, here's this one-time deal. And certainly we've done some work with our, our, uh, different teams and, and different boards of directors over the years as, as we think about that and, and different boards struggle with it. One of the things that we came up with was you can't buy back shares if if your company is trading for above essentially your finding and development cost. Because now you have this capital allocation decision where you say, look, I'm actually, if, if I'm trading above what it costs me to to drill a new well and bring new production online, my best use of proceeds, because I am an oil and gas company, not an investor, right, is to put money into the ground, bring that on, and receive that premium to that. And so that was really the lever that that when we did some work with with a few firms uh, who was who were looking at that. All right, that makes sense, and that was another way to look at it. But we certainly have, and we we did a monthly at the end of 2017, really looking at the the art of the share buyback right? because they were very popular at that point when, when prices were very low, valuations were pretty similar, but prices were low. Um, should management teams be buying back stock and, and people implemented these, these programs did it and no, the, the investment community didn't reward it. Valuations 
remain depressed. Stock so, price went down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so it's a balancing act. And, and certainly, it, you know, Eric's well-reasoned. Certainly a lot of companies are doing it. Um, we're waiting to see what that, you know, looks like. But guys like Cabot could become a, a private company here at the rate they're buying back shares. And they're, mm. they're a great management team. But, you yeah. know, that, that obviously too far. But they're very active on that share buyback front and trying to return capital shareholders. They've implemented a dividend. They're really trying to be very shareholder friendly. I'm going to reach out to Eric. I'm going to say, hey, look, you want to come on? We're going to do a one-on-one -on -one with you and you and Eric. <laughs> that would be awesome. I would love that discussion. <laughs> He's going to say, Glenn who? No. <laughs> so, um, you know, totally valid. And um, and it's, um, I guess, you know, we're going to we're going to see how this shakes on out going forward. Um, you know, I don't know the answer. I really don't. I understand where he's coming from. I understand what you're saying. Um, and I think companies are, you know, trying to navigate this and see how things play out. Um, yeah. So um, I guess moving along, unless there's anything else we want to wrap up on that. No, I think it, it kind of guides into what's going to come up next in, a, in, in some of our, our discussions. Because the, that's one thing that boards are wrestling with at essentially every board meeting. I mean, we're sitting in on some of these board meetings, capital allocation, capital budgeting. What are we doing with free cash flow? Should we be buying back shares? Should we be reducing debt? Those are all things the boards are wrestling with. And I, you know, he'll introduce it a little bit more, but we want to have uh, a guest and, and some interviews with folks that are actually sitting in these boards and making those decisions. Exactly. So, yeah, upcoming for, for our listeners here, because we're running a, um, uh, 35 minutes into this, you know, what uh, thematically, what do boards want? Um, so we're lining up uh, some guest interviews, and we hope to kind of tackle that, that very topic so we can get a little bit of color, and it's not just our speculation. Mm -hmm. So that I'm looking forward to that. I'm also looking forward to um, – uh, one of the things that, that we, we've mentioned this before is oil field tech. Uh, I think I mentioned it in the first broadcast that uh, Intercom has had a, in the past this oil field tech and innovation uh, conference. Um, we've had tech as a theme in our conferences. And we work with tech companies that, um, that it, it's, it's enough that it makes sense for us to really uh, insert that into, the, into this lineup on a more frequent basis. Because I, I do think that there's We've got plenty of people to talk to. Um, and uh, one of those is going to be uh, uh, coming on up is going to be one of the guys who actually presented at our Dallas conference, um, uh, Tom with uh, Innovation Illustrated. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I want to say it's Tom Shakur. Shakuri. Yeah. Shakuri. And so he's going to be talking, you know, AI in the oil field. He's, he's developed stuff with with other operators. Uh, he's worked with IBM's Watson Technology. Mm -hmm. uh, he's advising boards. And so, you know, how should, how are, he's telling people how they should be thinking about implementing it. And so, you know, I think that's helpful for everyone to have that perspective of what are the challenges, what what is capable, what is not capable, and, and really kind of flush out what is artificial intelligence. You know, and that's that that's the risk, right? Is that I won't say risk for him or anything, but but you know, I recall the days of, you know, the buzzword was big data. 
And everybody, you get them presentations and they're, hey, we've got big data, you know? <laughs> you're like, okay, I don't really know what that means and how is you operationalizing that and how is it actually, you know, quote unquote big data, mm -hmm. you know, contributing to your overall success because it just seems to be a buzzword. And that buzzword's kind of died off and it's gone away. And, um, you know, there's other ones that have come on up. And now the, the, the I don't say the buzzword, but it is, it's AI. And people are like, man, that sounds super sexy. Artificial intelligence. <laughs> wow. To, to me, it's a little scary. Like, yeah. all right, what what is what decisions is this making? But um, you're, you know, you're, Tom will Tom will let us know what 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 he's thinking and what he's what it can do. Yeah, I uh, want to know what his take is. Uh, perspective, I think, and experience, and that's yeah. that's the one thing is that you know you, these guys uh, you get the opportunity to talk to these guys who have worked you know closely with the IBM folks. Um, I'm really kind of curious because I, I'm, I really want to ask him sort of the whole, you know, hey, what about like Elon Musk and his concerns around, you know, distrust AI <laughs> and uh, uh, get his take on it. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. So Tom's going to be coming on up here um, within the next uh, two or three uh, podcasts. And then we're also going to be uh, filtering in some additional guests uh, that I think is going to be overall uh, interesting for for people who are interested in, in oil field technology. Yeah. So, okay. Um, as far as uh, this podcast goes, I think we should probably get to the point where we can wrap this on up. Unless there's anything else we want to mention or bring forward. Let's wrap it up. So first and foremost, I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listen in. Um, Aaron, thank you for your, your time on this. And uh, I want to thank those companies that, uh, um, you know, that, that, presented at IPAA and shared their stories. So um, it was good to see them. Um, and that's it for now. So this will be the end of uh, Intercom's Oil and Gas Podcast number three. So thanks for listening, everyone.